And that, my friends, is how we introduce you to our next guest. This is Colliding Worlds. This is Angela Valencia Romeo. And I am now bringing onto the stage Nancy Potter. She is the author of this beautiful book that you just saw this gorgeous video about. Nancy, tell me the name of the book. Tell me all about it in 20 seconds or less. <laughs> okay, I'll try. <laughs> uh, thanks for having me. I'm so excited to be here. The book is called Barber's Cut. And it's about a story based on life of my great-grandfather, Captain Clyde Barber. It's, uh, it starts in 1894, goes to 1931, and it encompasses his rise from uh, basically rags, very much rags, literally, to riches, becoming one of the wealthiest men in the South. And it's, it's an interesting story at a very interesting time in history. And I researched it to death so that it's as true as humanly possible. The things that are, are happening are historically accurate uh, as much as humanly possible. I read the book and it's... You did. I did. I And I and I read it on my Kindle. My mistake was I should have gotten the hard copy. Um, it's much easier. To, it's it's a book you want to hold. That's what, that's what I think. I, I definitely, I, 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 I recommend copy. it. I got it on my Kindle, but I recommend if you purchase this book, you purchase it as a hard copy because it, it it's one of those books. You want to hold it and read it. I enjoyed it. I thought it was a great story. And I invited Nancy here because I really enjoyed the book. I enjoyed meeting her. Um, and I wanted everybody an opportunity to learn more about this wonderful story. Nancy just gave us a little background and I've asked Nancy to read something from her book and I'm going to invite her to do that, but I encourage you take a listen to this. And then when we come back, I'm going to have her delve a little bit more into herself, the history of this book. And again, if you purchase this book, please get the hardcover. That was my mistake. <laughs> Nancy, I'm going to turn this over to you and then you can, you know, read to us what you Bring think is hardcover too. I love it. <laughs> Here we go. Um, I will set it up for you. He's sitting on top of the flatboat, which is where they lived uh, when they were floating down the Mississippi and Ohio rivers. And so I wanted to read this part because it's one of my particularly favorite, uh, favorite line, favorite parts in the book. So Clyde goes up to sit on top where he can think and he can listen. A few minutes later, Clyde could hear the heavy breathing of his sleeping sister, brother. Deciding that he couldn't go back to sleep, he climbed the ladder to the upper deck, pulling his coat around him for warmth. This was where he could think, up on top of the world. No brother around to argue with him, quiet, pure quiet. He sat on the lazy board, resting his elbows on his knees, his head cradled in his hands, and listened. He wasn't sure what he hoped to hear, but still, he listened. Sometimes there's a lot to hear in the stillness of the river at night, he thought. The wind echoed with the voices of men who had lost their lives on this river, hundreds, thousands of them buried in this pulsating ribbon of liquid mud. The river so strong and willful, moving in her own time, in her own way, with nothing to stop her. The water lapped against the shore, running in bursts of energy and then retreating onto itself in a muffled sound of repetitive motion. The wooden boat creaked and moaned in protest to its static position, yearning to be let loose to float down the river again. Clyde closed his eyes to listen more intently. A dog howled off in the distance, or was he imagining it? Maybe it was a wolf? Are there wolves along the stretch of the river, he wondered? 
The loud reverberating noise of an owl hooting in the darkness startled him and made him shiver, his flesh now covered with goosebumps. He, it called out, who, who? Good question, he said out loud to the night. Who am I? A man who floats down the river only to be pulled back upstream again over and over. What a life. Am I destined to repeat this for eternity like Sisyphus? He had read about Sisyphus in a book on Greek mythology that his grandfather had given him, in which he had read cover to cover a number of times. The character had been condemned by Hades to roll a boulder to the top of the hill, only to have it roll back down again, repeating this action for eternity. Sisyphus was condemned to do it for eternity. He had no choice, but I do. I'm not doing that. He took in a deep breath and filled his nostrils with the familiar smell of musty dampness and raw wood. He rubbed his hand along the edge of the lazy board and remembered his father's words. All this will be yours one day, Pa had said proudly. You know these rivers like the back of your hand. I'll leave the business to you and be proud to call you my son. Pa had beamed at the thought. Clyde had felt suffocated. There's got to be more. I'm not going to spend the rest of my life like this. I'm going to sit up high in the pilot house of a fine steamer, and that's just the beginning. I'm going to have a whole fleet of boats, and I'll be able to run my business like a college-educated man. I'll have a real house, a big house in a town where my children can run and play instead of working all day like I do. No, I won't end up like Pa, doing back-breaking work all day, drinking when no one's around to see just to be able to keep going. I have dreams, ideas. I'm going to go beyond the river and make a better life for myself and my family. I swear. He spoke out loud to the night. He told it to the hooting owl and the howling dog and the lapping water. He told it to the world. But most importantly, he told it to himself. And he meant it. Who are you talking to? Clyde recognized Luke's voice, which seemed to come out of nowhere. Luke came walking toward him, rubbing his hands together in the early morning chill. Myself, just talking to myself. You picked a good night for it. No one around to tell you nothing different. Luke stood looking at the trees. What woke you up? Clyde asked. Thoughts are heard somebody talking, Luke said. Wanted to be sure everything was okay. Sorry I woke you up. I didn't know I was being so loud. No matter. Does a man good to get fresh morning air from time to time? Luke sat down next to Clyde. His legs stretched out in front of him. He leaned back on his straightened arms and looked up at the sky and continued to speak. I tell you, I love living on this here boat on the river. Every day there's something new to see, always moving, never stuck in one place too long. I guess, Clyde answered. But don't you get tired of it, of a new town every day, of never stopping and staying anywhere? Hell no, I done been stopped and stayed before and it weren't too good, Luke answered. What do you mean, Clyde asked. Don't you miss your wife and your son when you're gone for months at a time? I miss them all right, Sarah and my little man. And when I see them, we'd be real happy to be together. We'd be so happy the whole time I'm home. No fussing, no nagging, nothing but good times. You know, when I'd be on the plantation with my first wife, she'd be hollering and cursing and the like. She was one strong woman, and all the time I'd be having to listen to the hollering and cursing of the boss man when I'm saying, yeza, yeza, and acting so happy and grateful when all I feels was someone holding a pillow over my face so I couldn't see where I was going and I couldn't breathe. He looked at Clyde. It's all in how you look at it. It's kind of how I feel right now, like I'm being smothered. How did you stand it? Luke was generally interested. I kept my mind on where I wants to go and what I wants to do 
and didn't stop till I got there. And look where I am, a free man living and eating with a nice white family and making enough money to send home to my family. But Luke, don't you talk, just listen to me. There's nothing freer than this river. I gets my freedom from this river. She lets me go along for the ride. I can stay, I can go. I works real hard, but then I get to sit back and rest as we floats along. Your ma and pa, they treats me like a man on this here boat. Not no lesser, but a man same's you. That's free. And if this ain't enough for you, you figures out what you want and don't stop till you gets it. Don't let fear get hold you. And if you gets lost along the way, just try something else and keep going. If you don't, you'll be living somebody else's life, not your own. But Luke, you are a slave. There's more than one way to be a slave, Mr. Clyde. That's Thank it. You. I think what I found really, really interesting about the book, the dialogue, um, you felt like you were hearing these people talking. Um, you, you, you fell into it. And it's very hard, I think, to write the way people speak. And there's an instinct as a writer to want everything to be perfect. And you're not talking about people who are perfect. These were people with real-life problems, real-life flaws, living in the real world. This wasn't a fantasy. And, and, that, and that, that was, to me, as a writer, and to read, to read this, that to me is a, 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 a huge, amazing achievement. Because very few people can capture a dialect and capture actually how people speak and spoke. Um, how hard was that, part of that, to do? Well, I think part of what uh, helped me doing that is I've lived so many places and I've, I've been around so many different kinds of people in different countries and different parts of countries that I could hear dialogue in my head for instance, when my uh, grandparents lived in Louisiana, I could hear that speak from when I lived in Louisiana. I could hear um, this black, old black man speak. I was around an old black man growing up who was like part of our family. And so uh, that was very helpful. And I think all my travels throughout my life, I was fortunate enough to do a lot of that as a young girl. We lived in Europe, uh, helped with the dialogue and uh because I could actually hear it. I could hear his name was Harvey. I could hear Harvey talking. And of course, it's difficult for me. I don't sound like a man. And then I feel like when I'm trying to read and sound like a man, that's kind of goofy. But um, I think when you read it, hopefully it comes across. It's as, it's as real as I remember hearing. And what was, but that was the interesting thing. When you read a book, it, there's a difference when you see a movie or you see a book adapted to a movie. They've given you that voice. They've told you what that character will hear. I, as a reader, picking up a novel, I don't have a notion of what that person should sound like. I believe that the, the book itself, the written word, should give me that sound. And it does. I hear each character distinctly. Um, this is maybe not what you wanted, thought you were going to talk about, but from well, a I love this because it's it. Each each character has their own voice. You're absolutely right, and um, I I I think you have to know what that character sounds like, and it, sometimes you don't know it right away what the character sounds like. I, I wrote this book over thirty eight years, 
So you come back to it and it changes a little and changes a little. And um, I remember at one point, I don't remember when it was, re realizing that they dropped their G's. Like it's not looking, it's looking. I'm looking for a place. I'm not looking for a place. So I did a lot of dropping G's at the beginning because I also wanted to show how he started with, you know, dropping G's and how he ended up being so eloquent and sophisticated. And so it, I tried to make a gradual change in his language pattern, him specifically more so than his wife. But see, this, this is a key to capturing not just a good story, but to capture a good character, because you could have written this book in the, in the, I guess it's the King's English now. Um, <laughs> for so many years, it was the Queen's English. I know. Oh, you're confusing me. <laughs> yeah. Wait, wait a minute. You, I mean, it, it could have been, it could have been Oxford perfect. Right. Would it have had the same impact? No. I don't think so. I don't think so at all. And as a reader, you're, you're picking up this book and you start and it's a journey and you, Anytime you read a book, you have to surrender to the journey, but it was easy to surrender to the character because it, there was an evolution. And the cherry on top of all this was it's based on a true story. I mean, these are things that, that happened. These are people who lived. And it, it was it, that part to me was, I think, very interesting. And maybe because I write, I don't know, but I, I really found that being able to follow the character in his words, and I could hear that character speak, made them very, very real. I didn't need I didn't need Hollywood to tell me what he sounded like. You did a great, amazing job making these people pop off the page and be alive. And this is why, again, I encourage you, seriously, buy the hardcover because it's you you start reading it and you and you can't put it down. And it's not the same on a Kindle. I'm sorry, <laughs> it's just not. Well, of course, I feel that way because I'm a writer and I've, I've never read anything on a Kindle. So that's that's foreign to me, just as much as reading a hardcover is foreign to some young people. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm a book person. My ex-husband and I used to collect first edition books and we would like sit there like, oh, like, oh, my gosh, the end papers, <gasps> the smell of the book. You know, I mean, I miss the library with the cards, you know, <laughs> but yes. it's this was one of those books that you can immerse yourself in. And it, it, by no means is it a small book. It's a substantial book. It's 560 some odd pages. And that was, and, and to keep somebody's interest alive in a book, not on X or Facebook or Instagram or anything else, but with pages and words for that amount of time, is I think also a great achievement because you, as I read the book and John's reading it now, but as I read the book, you just wanted to keep going. You, 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 you didn't feel at any point, like I have to, I have to stop. I, can I skip ahead? You, you didn't want to skip ahead. Um, to write this, this is, this person was your great grandfather. He was a very colorful character. Yes. Was he the black sheep of the family when he first started out? And no, he was. In fact, uh, all we I come from a very southern family. Although I'm, have, you know, turned into this cosmopolitan person, having been all over. Uh, and we heard stories at him about him all the time. We call him Daddy Barber. That was his name as a grandfather. Was Daddy Barber? 
And we, I heard all these stories of what he had done and uh, things he had accomplished. And there's a place in the Houston Ship Channel called Barber's Cut. And it was his idea, as you now know, having read the book. And um, so I have always heard about Barber's Cut, Barber's Cut. And now living in Houston, uh, you go past, you can go past Barber's Cut. And it's kind of cool. Uh, so I had always heard these stories, but they were all about this wonderful hero who never did anything wrong and everybody loved him. And he was this perfect person. And all these years thinking about it, I thought, well, that's boring. That No one's going to want to read a book about the perfect person. And um, as I did research and interviewed people, uh, more and more started to come out about how human he was and that he wasn't just this, well, he was a bigger than life character regardless, but that he was very human and had human frailties and did things he wished he hadn't, just like all of us. So he became, there he is, he became a, uh, a much more real person uh, as I did the research and interviewed people. And some of the stories uh, in Franklin, Louisiana, where they lived a lot uh, for a lot of his life, he lived in Franklin. The, the old people back there all knew him, all knew the captain and talked about him and had stories about him. And so they would tell me stories I'd never even heard and which became, which were very important in writing my book. And now there's no one alive there that really has any connection. Uh, so it was, I, I say this, it was a grand story just waiting to be told. And I started telling it, found out more about him, about his life. I had no idea all the companies he started and all the things he did. I would just be agog when I was researching. Oh my gosh, he did this too? He did this too? And so uh, it's based on all that, but there's also a lot of fiction involved in, since it's not a biography, putting this piece with this piece. You know, I don't know what they said on a daily basis. I know certain tales that I've been told, things that they said. So I had to weave it all together to make it a story and to flow and to be interesting. Uh, and I was told over and over and over that I had to cut it in half. It was way too long. And I kept saying, no, I can't. There's not, there, I can't. I even looked into where I would cut it. It's like, there's just no place to cut it. It's not a whole story. And I finally had to do one of those, okay, this is scary because I don't really know what I'm talking about, but I'm not going to cut it in half. Having read that book, Again, and, and being a writer and having read that book, I don't know where you could have cut it. You could pull you could pull a story out and make a, you know, as an excerpt, but you couldn't. No, there really wasn't a place where you could cut that, cut no. that book because you would lose so much. There's a whole evolution going on here. It, it's the, the fact that it's based on truth and you, you know, you fill in the blanks as best you can. And you did an awful lot of research. You you would have lost so much. I mean, you, 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 it, it would have been like, you know, reading something, it'd be like the reader's digest version. And you're going, yeah, <laughs> remember you know. that? Remember the reader's of digest? Course. It was condensed. Oh of my course. gosh. My father loved those, but you would lose so much. There's so many things that you don't miss. I'm, a, I'm, a, people ask me, how do you describe yourself? And I said, I live in the footnotes. 
I, I love the footnotes because there's so much more there. And I, and, and that was the other thing with this book. When you read this book, it will come, it will, you'll come across things as a reader that you may not be familiar with. Right. And it makes you do something I, I love to do, which is called look it up. Oh, I love that. Me too. <laughs> it's like, okay, what is she talking about? And it's like, oh my gosh, that's what that's called. Or uh, what, what was going on? And you go back and you fill it in as a reader. You, you, you have to go back and you start to fill in the, the, the bigger picture and it makes the book much more colorful. I thought, you know, well, but, I, I, that's how I felt. I felt that I'm not, I can't tell everybody every little thing. And if they really, I can tell them enough to, for the story to go along, but if they really want to know more about Sisyphus, they look up Sisyphus. And and there are people who say, we well, can't do that. You can't make people look stuff up. Well, they don't have to. It tells you basically what this, what it meant. But if it intrigues you, then you can go look stuff up, you know? I, I always, every once in a while I'll come across and someone will say, oh, you, you, you can't, no one will know what that means. It's like, well, there will be somebody out there who does. That's right. And that's fine. If they don't understand or they don't know what it means, they can look it up or, you know, and there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with assuming that every reader is lazy. Right. Right. You well, know, and that, they are lazy generally in reading. They don't even want to read. So, um, but I have found the most uh, people who I would least think would even read my book, much less enjoy my book, just going, wow. I haven't one, some of a, a friend of mine said, he, he, he said, I don't think I've read a book since, since uh, the Velveteen Rabbit. Said, <laughs> I'm, on, I'm on my way to St. Louis. I'm a chapter 13. I just can't stop reading. And he just went on and on. And it, it, oh my gosh, to hear someone say something like that, it's, it gives me goosebumps. And this was this was a labor of love. I mean, this was this was your relative, your you know direct lineage. It was a very part of, a very important part of who your family is. Um, over the course of time, you know, people people forget and they embellish stories and they move on. But you you dug around and you did this research and you found you know. And again, he's presented with all the glory and all the not so glory. And that's made it a compelling story. You did research for this book for how many years? Well, I actually, the first thing I did was in 1985, took my cassette player and interviewed my grandparents on the cassette and then eventually transcribed it. And then um, I got, see, that was 1985. I got married five years later and then had, a child that was not expected to live. And so I lived my life for that child who is still alive. And so, I mean, life just kept getting in the way. There was no way I could have done anything other than take care of him. And so then when he got a little better, I started writing some more. And then I have to go back and read it all over again and start writing some more. And then um, I had another child who had his own issues. And uh, so it took a really long time. And uh, to write because I, I was a stay-at-home mom taking care of babies that need a lot of attention. And uh, I just always knew it would be written. I, I don't know that I ever really doubted that at some point it would be done. 
but there had to be, what was the impetus though? I mean, he was a very colorful character and you hear all these stories, but something had to trigger you in 1985 to go, you know what? I got to find out more. I mean, you look at old photographs and you look at, you can go back and see the old home, but you still had your, his daughter, um, uh, uh, Lily, I believe, right? Lily, correct. Um, here, you know, she was able to, she had, she had memories and she could tell you. Yes. Um, but what was it? What was it about him that made you want to write it? And when you went up to her and said, tell me all about your dad, did she go, why? Like, are you writing some scandalous novel or what? She had told me about him all my life and about them and about their great love story. And uh, so it wasn't unusual to ask about him. He was very much a presence in our life, which sounds kind of strange. Uh, but he was, and he was someone you were to look up to and want to emulate and want to make proud of you. And uh, so she was just thrilled, nothing but thrilled. And so she, they started talking about stories I knew and stories I didn't know. Most of which, most of the stories I had some, some uh, recognition of through the years of hearing them talk about him. And he just did so much that I thought, really wasn't even so much that I had to do it because he was my great grandfather, but this, here's this amazing man who did all this stuff. Certainly there's a good story in that. And I always knew there's a good story. In it. Otherwise it wouldn't have been worth taking all the time to put it together. And so we sat there for hours and talked. And then of course it wasn't, it wasn't just the only time I ever talked to her, I talked to her all my life. And, but that was a, a formal time where we sat down out on, what my mother called the lanai and uh talked about it i think that's a that's it's a great memory to have but i also like it's you talk about you go he also dealt with significant life changes including alcoholism infidelity jealousy dangerous situations such as dealing with mexican revolutionaries Yes. I mean, okay, come on. How many people do you know um a blood relative had had a run in, you know, with Pancho Villa or whatever? I mean, it's like it is the exactly. kind of stuff you go, uh what? <laughs> you know, it's and the Pancho Villa story is interesting too, because the story I'd put together or been told some of and kind of put together was wrong. And when in my research I found out that Oh, that's not how it happened at all. And uh, it didn't matter. It had happened. It just happened in a different way that, than I had imagined. And, and then every now and then you'd come across an actual newspaper clipping on something. It's like, oh, my gosh, look, here it is right here. That didn't happen a lot, but sometimes. But, but that's the joy of research. Um, it's when you find those little hidden gems and... That was the best part, I think, when you when you work on a project like this, and it's your family, so it's much more personal to you. But then you start digging, and there's a newspaper article, there's microfiche somewhere, there's oh, a photo, I'm you know, more microfiche. Oh, you gotta love it. I had a friend who was doing some looking at to her grandmother, and she has a photo of her grandmother, all decked out, smoking opium with Shanghai Shek. I mean, come <laughs> on, <laughs> you know, it's like. 
She goes, I still have the pipe. And I'm like, oh my God, you know, I mean, but you, you forget that these people had lives. I mean, there's this, also this other myth that people who lived before us were dull. They were boring. They, they weren't very intelligent. No, they didn't do anything. And it's like, um, hello. And here's a prime example. Yes. And I, I, he just has never gotten his due. I think because he died uh, earlier than expected. And so I think there needs to be a statue of him in Houston or in the Ship Channel. He, he needs to be in the history books. He didn't, did, never got his just due, desserts or whatever you want to say, call it. Well, you gave him 560 some odd pages. <laughs> I did. And, he's, and he, he thanks me all the time. <laughs> I mean, it, again, you're talking about somebody who started pretty much small. Oh, yes. And I love your cat. Um, <laughs> what was, what do you think drove him? I think he had an insatiable curiosity and an insatiable need to do more. And he was sort of, well, He's been described as a Renaissance man. There he is in their house in L.A. When the oil started coming up out of the ground in L.A., he bought a house out there to go and see how if he could make some money in oil and in the film industry. Uh, and so he. I think it's curiosity and it's all also the desire to know more because his his grandfather had had instilled that in him. His grandfather had been to college in Ireland and um, brought books. You know, books weren't something people had a lot. And not when, not when you're flat floating down on, on a flat boat, you know, they didn't have, but he, he had access to books. And so his grandfather got him interested in learning. And I think once you have that level of interest in learning, it doesn't die. It just stays with you forever. And he'd hear about something. I don't want to go into too much detail and ruin the story. And he'd go look into it, figure out how does that work? How does somebody do that? And I think it was you know, his, his desire to learn and his desire to do better for his family. He had a really hard growing up. I mean, physically hard, emotionally hard. And he didn't want that for his children. That's classic, isn't it? No matter what what century you're talking about. He, like he said in that passage, he talks about, I mean, I'm going to have a real house on the land and my kids are going to be able to play. You know, and it's funny because it, that is, it's kind of, they always say the American dream, every generation wants to do better for their children. The next mm -hmm. generation is always going to do better, but it all starts somewhere and, and not everybody's born you know, a princess and not everybody's born with a silver right. spoon and not everybody's born into, into wealth. And sometimes you have to create those opportunities. And again, not giving a lot away, but he created opportunities because he, I think he was a wildcatter. He was, he was, oh, he yes. was, a, you know, and they, and a, and a bit of a gambler. It was, you have nothing, was it, what's the old saying? Nothing ventured, nothing gained. Right. And you venture and sometimes you lose. It takes courage to do that. It takes courage to go out on your own when you have nothing and do something. I mean, that's what stops people, right? I have nothing. I have no idea what to do. Do something. Take one step. He, and that's the thing. And it's funny because he took lots of steps. Um, 
and and again not everything was successful not everything was rosy over the course of time it's like any other family you remember the good and you embellish it and you keep going and then you realize there there was they was still a man he 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 bled like everybody else and he had weaknesses like everybody else. And he had something else that was very important to him. He had love. Yes. Yes. He surround. he was surrounded by love and he gave love to lots of people. He was a very loving person, very generous person. And not all of his ventures were uh, mega million ventures. You know, he decided that Franklin, they could think that the town of Franklin could use a hardware store. So he knew uh, a man there who liked to do things with his hands. And he talked him into giving, he gave him the money and 300, he spent $300 on tools to start a hardware store in Franklin. I mean, it was never a big money maker, but he thought Franklin needs that in order for us to really be prosperous. We need a hardware store. So it wasn't always big dealings. Sometimes it was very small. But sometimes what it is, is those small things that make a town, those are the small things that make a city, there are small things that make a, a complete person. Um, and, and there was a humanity part of this when you read it, as much as you wanted to say, well, maybe she made this up, or maybe she didn't, there was always an element of truth that any great story has to have truth and there was truth and it made it made every big thing wonderful and every little fall m more endearing right <laughs> you know? because i think as humans we all have that and it makes us human i mean we all have our our failings and we all have the things we do really well and uh he wasn't happy about the things he had to deal with, but he dealt with them to the best, he, the best of the best that he could. And he certainly it wasn't all rosy. He had a lot of things he had to deal with that, not that other people didn't as well, but that he often dealt with, I think, better than a lot of people would have because he had a real sense of humanity, a real sense he needed to help the world. And that was part of what drove him too. He wanted to make the world a better place. He wanted everybody to be successful. You know, now that's how I feel. I want every, we can all be successful. There's not just enough success for two or three of us. Well, that I think sometimes I think of things like that. And I think I kind of get that from him. You know, Diana Ross, I think it was who said, there's plenty of room at the bottom. Yeah. And, and, and that's, the, that's the thing. And people, like you know, and sometimes people are content there to just let things happen and go with the flow and not really try. I think a life lived well has bumps and bruises and scars. Yes. And and that's what makes life wonderful. And that's what makes you know people <laughs> like Clyde all the more special. And and it was great that you captured now when you're writing a book, and frankly, it's about it's you know, your family. Was there pushback from anybody that said, why are you doing this? Can you just let sleeping dogs lie? Well, my father passed away about two years ago. He was 97. And he would always say, well, you can't say any of the bad stuff. You can't say any of the bad stuff. The family will look bad. And I just, you know, I just, yeah, dad. Okay. So um, he would, he said that forever. Uh, 
my mother, who is actually part of the bloodline, died 20 years ago. So uh, she was very helpful up to that point and never would have told me not to say something. But I had a fear of, and I, I won't say who at this point, but one of the children, one of Clyde and Jenny's children was, you know, not the greatest person and wasn't shown as the greatest person. And I was concerned that relatives that I didn't know, because I didn't know any of these people, any of the uh, of the people that down the line might come after me. I even, you know, talked to a lawyer about it and what to do and how to say things because he was not shown in very good light. And I worried and worried as I do, unfortunately. And come to find out, they said, oh, he was despicable. <laughs> He just came around when he wanted money. Nobody liked him. I'm like, Phew. that was a big relief. Yes, that's when you go, these are this is a composite of many people. <laughs> I, I kept saying, I kept saying, remember, this is uh fiction based on fact. Now I had to I've had to put some things in there. It's not all factual. I would say that over and over, hoping that they weren't I had no idea. And I I don't, I don't, I haven't had to have a lot of confrontation in my life, so I'm not sure I'm really that good at it. And, but I didn't have to have any, at least not yet. Yeah, I don't think you will either. I thought the book was well written and anybody who perceives themselves as being in a bad light, they have to stop and take stock of who they are. Um, the lawyer part of me always worries about things like that. It's like, yes, it's like, don't use the real name and don't use this. And there's some there's some something to be said for that, but there's something to be said for the truth. And again, the book has a ring of truth. And if the story didn't have it, after 55 pages, you would have been like, "Yeah, I'm done." And you don't. You keep going. It's like I, I remember reading Hawaii, Michener's book Hawaii. Yes. Well, the first couple of hundred pages are about the birth of the island, and I'm like, "Oh my God, is it ever oh, yeah. going to get?" any better and i kept reading like kept waiting waiting and it was worth it but man i'll, I'll tell you the first 200 pages yeah i don't think people know me well enough yet to give them 200 bad pages and expect them to like the 200 and want first right oh gosh it's crazy now this this was a book that took it was a long time in coming for lots of reasons um life gets in the way and, and i want to talk about that in a moment but i also realized that you're you're thinking of a second book um I've started a second book. And that's based on your grandmother? Yes. One of their children was my grandmother. And um, it's her story, which is the complete opposite of Clyde's story. And um, it's your richest rag story. So uh, it's about what happened after Clyde died, what happened to the money and the businesses and everything. It's not a nice book. <laughs> But it's an American story. Yes. It's, and, and it's it's not um it may not be the the you know, the princess, you know, runs off to the you know, marries a prince and runs off, but it's an American story. It it's happened, you know, and it's it, I think it's I think it's probably gonna be a cautionary tale and a good tale to sell and but it's gonna show people how 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 life really is. Yes, exactly. And my grandmother Lily, uh was the epitome of a Southern belle, uh, always smiling, always gracious, never ever raised her voice my entire life. Um, everything was served with the right China and the right silver, even when, you know, because they still had, it, it's very Southern to have stuff and no money, right? 
And so I was raised very Southern that way and knowing how to do things a certain way. And, and you know, don't wear black to your 21 and now all this, all these rules, I should write a, a Southern rules book. Uh, and, and her entire life, she was that way, no matter where she was or what, what kind of house she was living in or what kind of dress she had on, because, you know, the kinds of things she wore, um, she always smiled and she was always grateful and she was always happy, just almost crazily. So my mother had that same tendency. I think I, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, it's, yeah, I, it, it's kind of funny when you talk about that. It, it's uh, my former mother-in-law used to say there are certain things money could never buy. And one of them was grace. And grace has nothing to do with how much you have. It's all about who you are. And I would see these people as, you know, as a friend of mine say, if I have one biscuit, we're all going to share from it. You can tell they were Southern. Absolutely, and it was, you know, it was all about. It it was just all about the about about about, about opening your heart, opening your home, and I remember going to a friend's house, and they had next to nothing, but the table was set perfectly. Mm -hmm. I mean, the linens may be a little ragged, but everything was, the you know, there was a sense of decorum that was there, and it was genuine. Yes. And it wasn't for anyone else. It wasn't to make to impress someone else. It's because that's how she lived and, and she was comfortable living that way. And it's pretty extraordinary. I, I, I like that. I'm I like that I like decorum. I kind of I, there are certain things I miss, you know, man. It makes you feel old. Because it's just some there's some comfort in things being done a certain way and knowing they're gonna be done a certain way. There's comfort in that. And mm -hmm. I think I think that anyway. I do. And I, and I laugh because um, growing up, I'm the oldest of 10. Oh. So, so, I mean, it was like, you know, it, it wasn't this, you know, monstrous house. It was a basic blue collar and you, you know, everything was, but there were certain things you did. Dinner was at the table at a certain time and, and that's the way there. it was. Pardon me. And you were there to eat it. Oh, and if you weren't there, then it's too bad. You, you missed out. And there was none of this, I'm going to cook 27 things because you don't like it. The only exception was liver. Oh, yeah, dad, we had that exception too. <laughs> my dad liked liver and my mom would gag as she cooked it. And so the kids would all sit at the table and refuse to eat. And my father would send them to bed and my mother would make, you know, beans and hot dogs. Right. Um, no one was looking. But there was something about it. There was something about that going, going to church on Sunday. Um, and we go to the grave sites and visit my dad's mother because she had passed away when he was five, going to visit the grandparents. You know, there was some comfort in that. Um, and when I married the first time, they came from uh, the family had old money. And it was there were certain like <laughs> Lois was the one you can't buy grace. But there was the decorum. It was like, do not wear diamonds in the daytime. Diamonds are evening. No, the black. No, if you're if you're younger than twenty one, forget about that. Um, pearls. There was something about this understated elegance that was part of everything, and it was it was it was seamless and easy, and it was just a way of life. And I I think you know, Lily's story sounds just as intriguing as I. Well, it will be, it will be. and. Uh... I started, 
it's her, the whole, well, at the moment, anyway, the whole book will be a flashback. I don't like books that go back and forth all the time. I get confused about where I am and who's who, but it starts when she's an old lady and then she tells the story of her life basically. So that's how, um, that one's going to work. And I will tell you that, um, in my house, I have a museum to these people. You would not believe all the stuff I have that belong to them. Glasses and telegrams and pictures. I have a piece of my grandmother's wedding cake from a hundred years ago tied up in a box. It's ridiculous. And I have what they called opera coats. My great grandmother, yep. Jenny, had opera coats. I have two opera coats of hers. I have a dress of my grandmother's. I have some of the stuff when you pick it up, just kind of, you know, falls apart. I, I, every day I use the uh, Sterling flatware with Jenny's uh, initials on it. <laughs> and I use the, the, I have a few pieces of the china left. I mean, I just, I, I decided, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago, just using it. Uh, why save what it? Do, do with it. And I have boys. They don't care anyway. <laughs> I, I, have, I have, again, I have a friend who's the one whose grandmother and it's China silver everywhere. It's like, and she uses it for the cat because there's just, there's I just too much. <laughs> so it's like, I don't know what to do with it. You know, there's something. And I have, I had this other friend who's passed on, but he was, a, he was raised by Southern women. Mm -hmm. and, and John was an older man. But I would come in the room and John would pop up out of that chair. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Miss Angela, what can I do for you? I'm like, oh my gosh, like, please sit. And he, it just was part of who he was. Wow. And, and there was something about decorum and manners and respect. Um, and there's a, a and that was the interesting thing too, because people, there's a whole, there's a, sometimes a miscon a misconception like everybody in the south is backwards and bigoted and they're horrible horrible in yes. when you scratch the surface any place you're going to find bad apples but it's not the case no it's not people want it wanted to be nice to everyone that's how i grew up and that was part of something i don't know if it was intended but there was that that sense in the in this reading this book i mean he could have he could have been a person who walked all over everybody and treated everybody you know that they're no better than the dirt beneath his feet right but it didn't come across that way it gives a it gives a taste of this country in a certain time where there is a preconceived notion that everybody was a racist bigot horrible horrible human being it's horrible and i think and i think it's timely right now because it's a real american story and like i've said uh, i believe i've said it in a number of places you may have read it where only in a country like this could a man come from from nothing and achieve so much and you still can, or you, or we won't go into that, or hopefully you still can. But I think it's a, people need that story. They need to see it's possible and that this really happened. I didn't make this up. This really happened. Someone made that happen and you can make it happen too. You, not you specifically, people can make it happen. And, and, and that's, that's here a, now more than ever. You need, you need to know, A, there's hope, either in, yeah. and there's, there's success and failure. Mm -hmm. And and that was the, that again, he he Clyde had great success and he had failure. But did he take the failure and go, yeah, I think I'll quit today. 
No, I mean you you move on, you do something else. In 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 that that's that is an American dream, and it's it's a shame that it might be being lost or you know subverted somehow. Yeah, but there was something about this again. What's cool about this book is it may be, you know, fiction based on fact or fact, you know, peppered with fiction, however you want to, however you want to call it. But there's, there's truth in the story. And it's the truth in the story that makes the book worth reading every word, every page. It's, it's compelling in that way. And that is, again, as an author, that's an amazing feat because few can do that. Um, you see books, they're, they're, you know, 150, 200 pages and okay, that's great. And as a writer, you think, you know, whatever you, you took a story and, and you captured it, you captured the dialogue, you captured the time, you captured everything, took the truth and, and wrapped it in what was happening around it. So it's not a story in a vacuum. It's not a story where you took somebody and you put them on a pedestal and said, oh my gosh, this is the new, you know, new Zeus. We should all be worshiping him. It, it, it made it a compelling, wonderful book to read. And the fact that it took you so long to write this is another testament to, to the bloodline that you guys don't <laughs> give up. You're just going to keep on going, you know? Well, I'll tell you the one trip I made to Franklin to a certain house that, you know, but I won't mention uh, doing research and walking around the grounds and, okay, uh, talking to Clyde, who's been gone for a really long time and talking to Jenny and walking around. That's me as a little girl in front of Oaklawn Manor. Um, and I'm walking around the grounds there and thinking about Clyde and feeling like, I don't know what to write next. I don't know what to say next. And I said, can you please just give me a sign? And right at that moment, like a hundred birds flew out of the trees. It was one of those crazy moments. I know some people think I'm a crazy witch or something, but it was really cool. Hey, you're a Southern girl. Yes. Witches are, you know, that whole thing. <laughs> yeah. Like the, like the Grigri. Did you like the chapter called the Grigri? Someone said, someone said, Gris Gris, what's Gris Gris? I said, look it up. <laughs> I know it's like I'm sorry. Do you ever heard ever heard this thing called a dictionary? Not there's a things called encyclopedias where there's real fact checking, not Wikipedia, where anybody can go in and write what they want. I mean, come on. I oh my gosh. I remember a kid, my mom would buy the Britannica one one edition at a time. By the time you got to the end, it was time to start all over. But there's again, like I said, I, I, I and my thing is I live in the footnotes. I want to know these things and I will spend I get, I go down rabbit holes. It's like, oh my gosh, I got to find this. And you keep going, you keep going. What, what's that boat called? And keep going. Why is it called that? Why was it built that way? Why was this riverboat different than that boat? That's and, what smart people do. They're interested in things and how things work and what happens next. But, and why, when you, when you, but you've got a cut. You, It's called bar. And why is it called a cut? What was it for? Look at the boat. I mean, it's, it's like, okay, why, why does the boat look like this? Yeah, wh why? Wh what was it about it? And it, the rabbit holes fascinate me, and this left me so many. And there were times I'm like, well, I tell you that I found I, I had a description of the flatboat from you know, hundred years ago and or more, and I gave it to an artist 
here in where I live outside of Houston. And he's from Turkey. In fact, in the process of doing this, he did my cover as well. Uh, in the process of doing all of this, he took his exam to be a citizen. How cool is that? That is what that. <laughs> anyway, so he drew, a, he took this, he made like, I have this styrofoam kind of thing he made first so he'd get perspective and he drew the flatboat and it, was, it gave it because no one knows what a flatboat is it gave it life and to see that picture was just wonderful and then if if you're uh, crazy enough to go back and look on some of my beginning of my facebook about my book i have a thing where i show how i use a styrofoam flatboat to show how they work going down a puddle so um, it's it give you some idea. Uh, but he was instrumental. He did the cover and uh, he's just a wonderful person. And, and, and this is this is why I encourage It's kind of like I miss record albums because I like all the artwork. Yes. It's, and this is the difference when you have the hardcover and you look at that and, and it keeps you going. And there's and that that's a, the visual of it goes so well with what the book is and when you read it and you're going along with it and I, I enjoyed it but the journey to writing this book was not easy for you um, you and you're involved in a in a charity and in working on finding a cure for a specific condition and I'm gonna I'm gonna turn that to you I mean explain to us you know exactly what this condition is um, and how and how you are involved in, and how anybody else can get involved. Well, it's the, the tagline is the worst disease you've never heard of. Uh, it's called epidermolysis bullosa. And, uh, you know, your epidermis is your skin and it's your largest organ. And there's three types of this disease. Uh, two types are fatal and another type that gets better. What happens is this kind of friction on their skin takes their skin off. They're missing some of the connecting fibers from one, one layer of skin to the next. It's, and it's a keratin problem in most of them. So you, you can't touch them. You have to, they, they, spark, they get blisters, hundreds of blisters every day just come up from even, from with, even if there is no friction involved. You have to lance all the blisters every day then you can't really bathe them because you can't rub a washcloth or soap on them. So you have to put them in a bathtub with hippocleans in it and let them soak, which is really uncomfortable at first. And then you have to lance all their blisters and wrap them up in uh, uh, sterile gauze, Vaseline gauze. Some of the children are wrapped, their whole bodies are wrapped up. They're like a mummy. And, um, it's a 24 hour day job. And luckily I was married to a doctor at the time. His father, his father's a doctor. And so he wasn't freaked out about it. Uh, it was, it was, it was just awful. And so we tried to find nurses to help me that would come and we call it doing blisters that would come and do blisters. And I interviewed four or five and they'd come and see what I did. They'd never come back because it was so awful that what you had to do. Eventually I found someone who helped me. Uh, but it, there's an organization called the net, like the name Deborah, D E B R A dot org, which stands for 
epidermolysis bullosa, a, a long name, Deborah.org, and you can see uh, pictures of these children and what they go through. And uh, so, so he was when he was born, luckily by cesarean section, or else he would have pe perished. And half his, more than half his skin came off when they pulled him out of me. And that's the first we knew that there was a problem. It was, uh, yeah, it, it was, it was really awful. So you have a, on your website, and I'm going to try to share the screen. There's a small video and, and a little bit about the organization. I'm going to try to do a screen share now. So, um, see if I can. Um, okay. Let's see here. Let me go back. We're going to get this. Hold on one second. It, 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 it's heart-wrenching to, to see. I'm Asa. I smile like any other kid. I play like any other kid. I took explore like any other kid. But I'm not any other kid. I was born with EB. My skin is as fragile as a butterfly's wing. So it hurts to walk and talk and even get a hug. Asa was born with epidermolysis bullosa, the worst disease you've never heard of. The pain never goes away, and the sores are on the inside too, so it even hurts to eat. Five years ago, there was no treatment for kids with EB. But today, there's hope on the horizon. Help fund the research and be a part of the cure. Go to Deborah.org and give today, because the cost of doing nothing is too great. That that little video is heart-wrenching, and I don't know what it would have been like to be a parent like you were, to have a child that you 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 were afraid to, I think I would have been afraid to hold. Well, you had to, uh, yes. It was it was um, unimaginable. Carried him around on a pillow, and no one but his dad and I would touch him because if you didn't touch him the right way, then you know his skin would come off. And uh, so he spent the first. He, he walked when he was about four. But he had blisters all over his feet. He couldn't walk. He couldn't talk. He couldn't eat. He couldn't hold anything he had blisters all over his hands he couldn't hold anything so the first they say the first three years of your life you, you, of your development are the most important in terms of uh, building a good foundation on which you build all of the rest of your of, of the things that you'd use your body for so he missed all of those and um, so his development is skewed and at 31 he is more like maybe a 12 year old in his development. He has help. She's been trying to live uh, independently for a long time. Uh, and so that's, uh, it's, it's been wonderful that he has people to help him and um, programs, some government programs that help him. But most of the kids don't survive, which is why you really don't know about the disease. And he was fortunate to have the kind that was the worst when you are born, but then gets better 
and he's actually here for Thanksgiving. He lives in Idaho, and he's in a program in Idaho, which is a wonderful state for people who have problems like that. So he's here visiting us now. That's wonderful. But you've been instrumental in, in working on trying to raise awareness and funds for this. It's it's a genetic disease, um, and as you said, it's not one that's common. You don't hear, you don't see big marathons for it, but there have been strides in in helping. Um, is there, do, have they developed genetic testing? You know, like they test for all kinds of things. It's How do you, how do I, can I say that? You, it, some people are prone to certain diseases. Right. So they'll test for Tay-Sachs. They'll test for certain things. Is this, this, is this something that can be genetically tested for so you can be prepared? Or well, is the, it? The, the last that I knew of, and there could, you know, the research is changing all the time. You have to get a sample of the skin. Well, that endangers the fetus to get a sample of the skin. And neither his father nor I carry that gene. It's, it can, you know, anything can happen when you mix genes together. It was some kind of abnormality that, uh, so we had no way of, no reason to even think. Never, I'd never heard of this. His having, been, having gone to medical school, it's the kind of thing that you learn about, but you never see. And so uh, it was one of those things. And at the time, Deborah was, a, was like a two person organization and there was just no help. There was no research, no nothing. And so I uh, had the first major fundraiser for the disease in this country back in 1995 when Spencer was three um, at the Ritz Carlton. And I had five of the most famous chefs in the country who came and cooked. And uh, the disease was is so horrible that when people would see it, they would want to help. And that the um, the chefs ended up paying for their own food and their own airfare and everything just to be part of this uh, amazing event. And we had wineries, all the big wineries you've ever heard of in the 90s, uh, gave wine for the auction and for dinner. So it became quite the invitation uh, uh, for the wine and the food. And we had auction items. I will tell you that ZZ Top signed an, um, a guitar that we auctioned off, which was cool. Uh, uh, one, the drummer lived in our neighborhood and they did that for us. And so I did it again three years later. And and since then, Deborah's become this big organization. They have a, they give a million dollars of wound, wound care products out every year. Because I remember he was always uh, underweight and so we had to, I had to pump the breast milk and then put in this fortifier and then drip it into his feeding tube because he had a feeding tube and, uh, and then bandages every day. It was, he was like a $60 a day child just in bandages and supplements. So uh, it's very expensive disease as well. I don't want to go on and on too much. Sorry. No, no. I mean, to me, uh, you know, when you, and it's on your website and I know it was important to you or else it wouldn't be there. Um, and it, it is, it's one of those things and you look at it and you go, what do you do? And, and, you know, and knowing that you know, part of the reason why the book took so long is you're a mom and you're taking care of a child that needed you more than the average child did. And then knowing that, 
And then reading the book, it, again, it's like the bloodline that you have is, I'm going to make it work. And, 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 and you did, you have a son who's, who's 31, who's, who's defied the odds more or less. Um, you've got to be proud of what you did as a parent and what he did as an individual, because it would be so easy just to go and give up. Well, people do, don't they? I think divorce rate and handicap with having a handicapped child is very high. And, uh, because it's it, it just takes everything out of you, absolutely everything. Um, and one of the things I had to do was put Vaseline all over him and wrap him up. And I remember one night we finally had a babysitter that we could go out every now and then and leave him. And so we went out to this very fancy wine dinner and I'm all dressed up. I haven't been dressed up in forever. And I walk into the bathroom and I see that I have Vaseline smeared on my forehead. <laughs> so it, oh, it made me want to cry and laugh at the same time. So I decided to laugh. But here I was finally all dressed up going out and I had Vaseline smeared all over my forehead by accident. It's like going out and being a new parent. You still get that baby spit on your shoulder, you know? Exactly. <laughs> but, I always like the new parent that pulled it on their pocket and up comes a binky. It's like, oh, man. Exactly. And I had one of the people at one of the wine tastings at we went to because we collected wine. I enjoyed wine since I was young, having lived in Europe, um, was in the bathroom with me one time. And she said, you know, I was so upset about my son and this and that and the other thing. And I looked in the mirror and I said, well, guess what? You could be Nancy. I'm like, is that supposed to make me feel good or bad? <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> you know, I think I have it bad. I could be Nancy. Okay. Well, I guess okay. it's like, I'm, you're judging me and I didn't judge you yet. Yeah, I don't know what that was all about. But anyway, I'm sure she meant it nicely. Um, but yeah, it was inconceivable. It's still inconceivable. Looking back on it's inconceivable. And he smiled all the time. I mean, he, he was a smiley kid and he was in pain all the time. So whenever he could learn to do something, he went to every therapy known to mankind. The first time he ever touched something, a toy that made a noise, the, everyone in the whole place cried and we went to tour. I went to Toys R Us and bought the toy, of course, because because it was the first time he'd be able to touch something and have a response. And I don't know how old he was, probably two or something. It's, still, it's, it's these victories that that make it, you know, you look back at it and that's what you remember. I, I think when we you go through something so hard it's the good things you remember hopefully yeah. the, the best i i found like i said i going i'm going to put this back up here this is nancy's website on her website there's a page that talks about the, um this charity and it gives you links and you can you can go you can read about it you can participate um after after i saw it i of course, me being me, you know she start doing this research and then John started doing research and before you knew it we were like knee deep in paper and video. And the thing that was a little distressing was it doesn't seem that there've been great strides made yet. Um, and very difficult. Like you could, maybe they could cure this right here, but they can't cure your whole body. You know, you can put something on here and that gets better. And so one of the things that the defense department back way back when, when I was raising the money, the defense department had, research going on for burns from chemical burns and they used the EB skin and all that to 
So that was one way they got a million dollars in funding was for burn uh, chemical burns. It's not like it's not like psoriasis where it's like you know where it's you've got a patch and you can deal with it. It's 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 just everywhere. everywhere. And you and know, that. Emeril Lagasse. You know, Emeril Lagasse. Mm -hmm. He was he was a new famous chef back then, and he was the lead chef of both of my events. And um, Spencer's been to his house, and people have 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 done a lot. Just want to make sure I say that. And I and I think you've done a lot, and I think bringing awareness and using using your fame through the book and putting this on your website, it now allows other people to become more aware of it. Right. And and um, you know, we could have gone through a whole interview and just skirted over it, and I really didn't want to. Um, I wanted to I make sure. That. Pardon me. I appreciate that. No, I think it's important, and this is a, this is a cause that you know you may not people may not be aware of, but it it's research is a funny thing. It sometimes working on one thing leads to leads to advances in something Absolutely. else, and I think that that's I think that's key. But like I said, it's like when you read that, you read the book, and you go, okay, the lineage just continues. You know, it's it's like she's got a grandfather, great grandfather in her somewhere because she's not giving up. You didn't give up writing the book. You clearly did not give up on your child, and you clearly have not given up on helping to support this organization. And it's um www d like david e like edward b like boy r like robert a like apple dot org. You can go there. You can get information. You can find out where you can donate. It's it's very compelling and. I got to tell you, Mike John got a little teary-eyed watching that little boy. I still get teary-eyed watching him, and I had one. <laughs> and now, and it, it's just—it's like you know—you sit there going, you look at your own children, you go, as much as they drove me crazy, I have nothing to complain about. You know, and look what this child's done. Look what he's doing. He should, you know, he should be applauded, not you know, not pushed away yeah. into the corner. Uh, and well, that's I, would, what, I would tell you that from time to time, I would say that to myself okay you have you have daddy barber clyde's blood running through you too remember that he's he's in here too and my great-grandmother i don't mean to just point him out and that's a, that's another love story and that okay now you can cut out and make its own little book uh, yes. <laughs> there's your little there's your yes. movie of the week right there yes exactly and in fact my my goal is to have it into a mini series uh, this this was a perfect mini series, don't you think? Oh my gosh, I'm reading. Okay, again, the writer part of me. I've I've got a TV series that I'm writing. I've really? got something else I'm working on, and I'm sitting there going, "Oh my gosh, I can see this. It's got everything in it. It's got a love story. It's got failure. It's got success. It's got intrigue. It's got bandits. It's got <laughs> really terrible. It's got all these weird things going on, but the underlying story is still a love story." Mm -hmm. it you is. it's like it it's is. like and i think that when i speak this in a very elementary fashion because i don't know a lot about making a miniseries but the characters i feel are so rich that they could be spinoffs i mean james could have a spinoff pocket it could be something before what happened it, it's the new yellowstone 
Oh, that's what I've been told before. I hope it's true. <laughs> I gotta tell you, I mean, every time I turn around, Taylor Sheridan's got something else going, and God bless him. I don't know how he does it, but he does. Know. But again, what what's cool about his stories is that there's his characters are flawed. Oh my gosh, I know. If you watch Yellowstone, is there any one of them that's redeeming? Okay, maybe the girl from with the Tex Arkansas accent that I have to have the subtitles on because I can't understand what she says. Yes. But I mean, his characters are so deeply flawed. Yes. Every last one of them, but you still watch them right. and you still root for them. You're still rooting for them, no matter how terrible they may be. I, when you read, again, the writer in my little brain's going, there's a movie here, but now it's really a limited series. It's the Thornbirds. It's, you know, it's that kind of. Because it's too long for a movie. You'd have to cut out big swaths of it. So to me, it's a mini series. And then um, the second book could be another season. Another series. I, it's funny. I was watching um, a Christmas store and, and I was trying to explain to John, I said, a Christmas story is a, a short story in a bigger book. Um, it's in God, we trust all others pay cash. That was Gene Shepard's book. And a Christmas story was just a story in that book and they were able to make a movie out of it there is nothing within the book itself that you could pull out and just make a movie about that one chapter it's these characters all intertwine with each other and you need them to keep going forward yeah it's a mini series girl it is a mini series i think so too now i just have to convince somebody that uh wants to put it together what you have to do is write the script. You have to write the pilot, do the pitch deck, blah, blah. Trust me. I've been like, when we did ours, I wrote, I wrote the pilot, we wrote a pitch deck and we did a sizzle and we did all these things, but we're up on Amazon and that's just the way it goes. And we keep working on it. But it, the, the characters are rich and they're rich because there's truth in it. And there's, that's what makes them cool. And I'm going to post up here. This is Nancy's info. This is um, her website. You can find her at Facebook on Instagram. This is the publisher. You can find the book on Amazon. Um, and on Barnes and Noble as well. And, and, and again, it's the hardcover. I encourage you to go with the hardcover because I, the Kindle makes 500 pages a lot easier to carry. Yes. But you lost something. And this was one of those books where I wished I actually had, um, had held the book in my hands and was able to to do it because it was it was that compelling. Um, I I enjoyed the book. I enjoyed learning about you. I enjoyed meeting you. We we met at a conference in Nashville, Tennessee. I I think I think this is I think this is gold for many reasons, and not the least of which is this is an American story. Yes, ma'am. Exactly. And you captured it. You captured it well, and you captured. To me, it's it's all the details. The the dialogue between the people, characters, however you want to phrase them in the book, rings so true that you hear them. And I don't need somebody in a. I don't need a movie studio to tell me what they sound like. I hear them, and that to me was gold. That was gold. Um, the story itself is, you know. Clyde was a Clyde was a compelling guy here, you know, and I, I think I have I think, his picture taken. I have a hundred pictures of him. <laughs> <laughs> he wasn't shy. No, he um, wasn't. <laughs> I think I I think that 
it's a great story and it's it's about hope it's about failure it's about success but it's about family and uh, he wouldn't he wouldn't have been able to achieve half of what he did without support from somebody who loved him despite everything right and i and and i also want to commend you for you know working so hard on 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 with deborah.org and bringing awareness to something that very few of us really may have heard about but didn't really didn't know much about um when you go to her website please go and look under you know there's a there's a tag that says donation and you can you can read about it and this is this is important too this is as important as buying a book is there's nothing wrong with helping somebody else and again finding a cure for one thing often leads to so many other different things and it doesn't hurt to, to give a little it hurts when you don't. And, and uh, thank you for. Well, I did. Clyde gave a lot and a little, depending on what was necessary. And you, people give to charities that they feel most comfortable with, but they, they can't give to something they don't know anything about. Right. And, you know, it's, it's, I, I choose to give, when I give to a charity, I try to give to a charity where I look at the, again, the lawyer in me goes, how much of money goes to admin costs? Right. And how much actually goes to the charity. When I start looking at charities where admin costs are over 12, 15%, I'm like, wait a minute. There are certain organizations that collect a lot of money, not mine. Right. Because when 85% of it is administrative costs, there's nobody getting what they're supposed to exactly. do. So I, I look at that. I look at, you know, where is this money going? I don't care if it's a dollar. I don't care if it's a million dollars. If most of it's going to admin there's a problem and that's what and i love when i found out they have this this new whole wound care package that they're helping people with because it's extremely expensive disease and so i appreciated that but i i appreciate you having me on here too i had fun I, I did too. Let, let's talk about doing a mini series Okay, and let's let's talk about who's let's talk about who's going to play us. <laughs> yeah, who's going to play us, and who's going to play Clyde? I think about you know which actor I should approach to play Clyde. So. You you know you you never know, and I know. and you, you I'm expecting it. I'm expecting it. So there I can go. see a Matthew McConaughey getting himself wrapped mm -hmm. up in something like this. It's it's I can hear him doing this. You know. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. If you know him, please tell him to read the book. Or if you hear this, please read the book. It's the six degrees of separation is so bloody scary. This is the book. I, I encourage you to find it, buy it, download it. I don't care. Just read it. It's an excellent read. You'll be surprised how quickly you get into it and you stay till the bloody end. You stay. <laughs> you don't give up. It's not, you know, you don't find yourself yawning halfway through. Um I, I enjoyed I enjoyed the read very much. I enjoyed I enjoyed meeting you, Nancy. I I did. I enjoyed meeting you in Nashville. I cherish the time we spent here today, and I hope you had a good time. Thank you. Bless you, and have a wonderful Thanksgiving. You too. Hey all, this is Colliding Worlds. This is Angela Valenti Romeo. Um, you know, stay with us. We've got all kinds of things in the works and you never know who's gonna pop in or pop out and do whatever. Um, but please um take a take a look at Nancy's work. Um find her on Facebook, you can Instagram, website, all kinds of things. Buy the book. Read. Try try it. It's it's a it's a really novel concept. It's amazing what you can do. <laughs> Bye. Have a good one. Thank you.